Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your ears do not deceive you. You have just entered the Cryptid Creator Corner brought to you by your friends at Comic Book Yeti. So without further ado, let's get on to the interview. This is Brian O'Neill, media editor for Comic Book Yeti, and today I'm sitting down with comics creator Lorenzo De Felici to chat about his new series, Chroma, from Image Comics. I appreciate you carving out a little time to talk to me about the project. Hey, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. So I had the chance to read the first issue, and I got to say I'm really impressed, uh, but let's give the listeners who haven't heard as much about Chroma yet a little more information. So could you hit the basic outline of the story? Yes, so uh, Chroma is set in a in a world in a fantasy world where um, there is one small village inside of a whole forest, a big big forest, and this this village is particular because everybody in it and everything in it is in black and white, meaning that it's covered with in some white clay or it's just plain white or plain uh, black. And that is because uh, in the forest around this uh, this this small town, this small this small village, uh, there are many uh, uh, predators that are like giant lizards, basically. And they have one specific uh, characteristic: is that they are blind to black and white. So basically, the people figured out that to to escape from them, to be invisible to them, they need to. Uh, uh, cover themselves in black and white and basically have a black and white based life. Um, and so the story begins uh, inside of this city where there is uh, just one um, individual, let's say, one the protagonist of the whole comic, that it's almost like um, some, some kind of a of bad example because she's, uh, she was born with one eye um, blue and one eye green, so it's like this, this sign of the of the devil. Because of course, uh, around this concept of black and white versus color, it's been built almost like a religion. And so she's basically, you know, the 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 uh, example of what's bad in the world. And the whole story revolves around her and what happens to her, and you know. Uh, the, the, her interaction with this kind of ordeal. Sure. The the thing that struck out to me the most was the mythology that you created in the book. It has a, to me, a dark fairy tale quality to it that makes it immediately memorable. You know, I have a degree in anthropology and I've always been fascinated by rigid societal structures. You know, the the powers that be in Pale City are certainly strict. Um, adherence to all these things. This this societal structure is compulsory you know was there a particular group or period of time you were basing that culture in the book around well actually i um i tried to be as broad as possible with that uh, meaning that i didn't want to talk about a specific kind of uh, you know uh, era like a medieval era or anything like that i didn't want to fall into those 
categories. Okay. I try to be, you know, to move from the from the core principles, or at least what I recognize as the core principle of a society where you need uh, some kind of scapegoat, some kind of devil or uh, something to blame for anything. And even from uh, a small thing like that, you can, um, a, whole, a whole culture can be born, a whole religion and, and tradition and rituals and things like that. And I just wanted to, Start from a specific and peculiar kind of uh, of bed, which is color, which is something that we are not inherently uh, accustomed to consider like a like a bad thing. Uh, quite the opposite. Uh, so that, of course, was uh, the the weird beginning of the whole thing. And in a way, it's also uh, like. It's also the fear of the of the complexity of of things because it's easier to you know follow the black and white instead of uh, you know uh, try to figure out a, a logic behind the multitude of colors of the multitude of opportunities and um, and diversity that there is in the world. So yeah, it was more like trying to go in that direction, and of course uh, could look like a fantasy comic for because of course it's it's set in a world where you don't have any kind of technology in a way but it's not referring to that also because i think that some of the things that were going on in the medieval times for example or even before that are we are we are always living those things those kind of i mean if you have a degree in anthropology you know that like some of the things at the core of us are always being there and they will always be there. And we just need to, you know, uh, figure out a way to, you know, to um, face them and, and to, to, make, uh, to make peace with them, to live with them. Yeah, there's a, a universality in the problems of the past being the problems of now and coming, yeah. coming back around for sure. Well, I'm overwhelmed how much symbolism you've you've packed into to this book. Uh, it feels very much like a statement about freedom, control. You know, uh, chroma. If you look at textbook definition up, is the purity of color, or it's freedom from white and gray. You know, the cover for issue one is really quite powerful. Chroma, the character herself, is in a fetal position, wrapped around you know this mask of a monster that she's convinced she needs to wear. That they've convinced her she needs to wear. I'm curious about her as a main character. So, you know, where did she come from and kind of what beats were you you trying to instill in her? So, uh, initially, the whole comic, um, uh, the whole idea uh, came from the fact that I was thinking about color. I was uh, working as a colorist at the time, and I was thinking about colors, and I was thinking about the role of color in the, in the uh, visual media and on so forth but <clears throat> so the whole thing started from that and so the first creation the first thing that came out of this idea were uh, were the lizards so the problem itself so i needed to have a tool uh, to to make color one of the characters of the comic and so uh, it started from there and of course um, as i had the problem uh, or at least I had the status quo of these lizards and these predators, and 
and the whole thing with the colors. I needed something uh, that could spice up the story and start the story. I needed I needed the engine of the whole thing. Sure. Uh, and so Chroma came out of that, and initially it was a more um, you know whenever you 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 start or at least uh, whenever I start writing something. Of course, your protagonist is always a little bit combative, a little bit, you know, um, uh, he, he or she has a fight in them. And and that was the case from Krama in the beginning. I wanted her to be more, uh, you know, active and combative and things at, in the beginning. But then the more I thought about that, the more I thought that, the more I realized that the... Um, the position she's in wouldn't allow them, wouldn't allow her to develop such a such a character, and so I I slowly started documenting a little bit about things like that, like like um, cults and and religions and how they treat uh, certain uh, people and how those people uh, develop their whole psyche, and and so in the end, uh, what came out of that was uh, the realization that I needed to have a small uh, uh, you know she need she needed to grow up from something that was very bad for her out of that into something and into the into a, a blossoming in a, in a way of her of her personality and of her character and the realization of certain things yeah and on the on the flip side uh you already referred to the giant lizards, which are more of a threat than they are an antagonist. And I'm getting the antagonist to be the king of colors. And it's unclear if they're kind of simply a metaphor for the wild or, in fact, a, a deity or something of that sort. And I won't ask you to clarify on that point because I don't want to give anything away. Um, but if nothing else, it's this great principle, boogie, boogeyman, right? Yeah. Um, and it's such a great name. You know, the, the King of Colors is fantastic. So oh, why pick something so uh, illusory when, you know, there's so much native danger in this world that, that you've created? So kind of tell me, talk to me about the, the King of Colors as a, as a character and why you wanted to use that in that way. Well, um, that is just uh, a quite plain... Um, there is a reason for that because you need to to have like a religion uh, about something. You need that something to be something intangible, and so the the threat can't stop at the lizards because otherwise it's more of a you know of a nature problem. And so to 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 go a little further in that. You need to project your fear and the blame of something over the imminent threat that you see over over the walls of your, uh, you know, of your uh, security in a way. And so that uh, that is just. I mean, I don't want to go too much over that because it's it's a spoiler. Sure, you know, sure, absolutely. Ter territory. Yeah, yeah, but it's just that I needed that. I needed. Uh, that the, the boogeyman was not something that you could immediately see, understand, and and recognize. I needed that to be something more. Okay. 
Yeah. And the looking when you're actually physically looking at the book, that uh, that lack of color at times is is quite jarring, you know, especially in the the action sequences. I, I can honestly say I don't think I've seen a more potent example of like the use of the selective color, especially of red, since Frank Miller's Sin City. I mean, it really, really jumps out. So I'm kind of curious, and you alluded to it a little bit before, was did you come up with, okay, I really want to do this with color in a story, and then the story kind of evolved and, you know, morphed around it, you know, was the was the seed this idea of using color in this selective way? And then the next step was, okay, I got to find a story to fit that. No, actually, it was it, it's the opposite of that. Um, okay. The, the idea came up when, while I was working as a colorist and I was studying color because I was also teaching uh, color in a, in a comic school. Okay. And so the more I studied that, the more I realized that uh, more often than not, uh, we uh, as like the comic students or art students in general, uh, they study the way to apply color, the way to use so- of software um, to do the job, etc. But then one more, uh, you know, el- um, elusive uh, topic is uh, why to use that um, specific color and when to use it, like this, this psychological involvement of human brain into the, um, uh, the seeing colors, seeing specific colors in specific uh, circumstances. And so the, I wanted to make a comic about that, about color, but not stopping at, um, you know, the use of select, color as a visual uh, effect. Mm-hmm. I wanted to make color more a part of the story and not just something visual. Like, for example, in, in Sin City, you can see that everything is black and white because it's, it's, a, it's a, an artistic choice. Mm-hmm. And then the red there or the other, or the blue or the yellow are other artistic choices. What I wanted to, uh, to do was a comic where that thing was not an artistic choice, but it was something that uh, came out of the story itself. Like, there is a reason why everything is black and white, and it's not my artistic choice. I mean, it is, as I'm, it started from that, but then in the context of the story, that's something that it's, it couldn't be any, any way else. Mm-hmm. And so in that, uh, I think that it's it's just fun to to play with color and with and and to make uh, random choices or bold choices with color. I wanted to tie my hands a little bit there to be uh, you know forced to use it in a more um, um, storytelling uh, related way. Well, I'm attempting poorly at at this particular moment in time to learn how to be a colorist myself. So I think this is something that's been really, really fun to analyze for me. So did you did you start with a, a palette of colors you wanted to use more or or a little bit less, you know, to to create certain emotions or certain, you know, to punctuate certain certain times? You know, it really it jumped out to me in the action sequences where you would use color in the to describe a word or a sound. Um mm-hmm. and and why those particular moments? I'm just curious 
Because to me, I think I would have recolored some of these pages 10 times, you know, trying to find the, the perfect contrast of color and the, the monotone notes. Oh, believe me, I do that uh, sometimes. So it's not, it's not, I mean, it's um, the choices that I do, that I make when I, when I color comics, they come from ex a long experience in, in comic coloring because I started from that. I like my first job for a while in comics was coloring comics. So it was co uh, color somebody else's work. Mm -hmm. And in doing that, I realized that I could make my uh, voice be heard just by these choices. I mean, if you do, if you color a, a, a tree and it's like just uh, green and brown, you are not making any artistic choice. and you are describing the tree, but you're not saying anything about the tree or about the situation, the scene, or about your, uh, you know, your. Ex it's not an expression of yourself in any way. So I, I slowly figured out how to push my, uh, you know, voice into colors, uh, making those choices. But of course, it's always a very, uh, you know, uh, it's a dance because you don't want to step over the artist. Uh, choices you just want to accompany them by trying to underline the right things so in a way i developed this this ability in time this skill in time and um, uh, of course when when you have uh, in your hands uh, a comic that it's all about colors um, there you have the opportunity to use these this language uh, in a very evident way and in a very eff effective way, or at least uh, I tried to do so. Um, the problem in, in Chroma is that um, as long as you are in the city, everything is pretty simple and everything you, you put there uh, color-wise is very effective because the, the, you know, the, the background is always really bland. Mm -hmm. uh, but as soon as you go outside of it in the forest, there the problem is that you have so many colors that make one of them speak to you specifically. It's way more difficult. So um, I tried to do that, uh, and I'm still trying to do that. I'm still uh, drawing the, the rest of the issues. Uh, but that it's a challenge every time. And so, yeah. Did you ever have that moment of regret using such an inventive format? You know, did you ever think, why did I make this so hard? Why? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, but I mean, I mean that that's the, the real challenge in it. Uh, if you don't have a challenge, if you're not trying to make something work when you know it's almost impossible to make it work, I mean, uh, it's it's way more challenging, but it's way more fun. That thing. So, for example, in in the previous. Uh, uh, in the previous um, work that I did, uh, I worked on Oblivion Song, mm -hmm. the comic from Robert Kirkman. There also, uh, in designing the bad guys, I wanted to do something with color. I was, uh, I tried to make so, I mean, uh, the, the color of the whole comic were, were done by um, Annalisa Leone, but I did the design initially for them. And so there I wanted to, um, instead of having these, uh, you know, the bad guys are always like red or black and, and, and that's it, they're very dark. 
or uh, you know Lumi. I was trying to make them as as colorful as as possible. I wanted to have like rainbows of color every time that the bad guys came out, and that was it was an even worse challenge because there it was very difficult to make them you know exude the, the sense of danger that they needed to have around them but uh, i mean analisa figured out how to do that so i said okay now it's time for the next challenge and and yeah so working with robert on oblivion song as the artist what were what did that project teach you about being a writer that you were able to kind of use and incorporate into Chroma? A lot. Uh, so Chroma, initially, I, I, I built the whole project and the pitch for it for the French market because I was okay. uh, working in the French market at the time. And it looked, it, it, the, I was also working for the Italian market, but the Italian market is quite weird. Uh, it's it's kind of close-minded a bit, so okay. I was trying to to uh, look over the Alps uh, towards France, and I came up with a project with a pitch for that, and I wasn't going to uh, write it. I had um, a friend of mine, a writer, help me to he helped me uh, uh, putting on the base of the story for some of the. Uh, uh, some of the characters, some of the elements of the story uh, for the French market. Then I went on uh, doing Oblivion Song, and so I put all that away for a while. And after, um, I mean, after four or five years working on Oblivion Song, I said to myself that maybe Skybound would have been a better uh, home for the project itself. And I re, I kind of erased everything I, I wrote before and my, my uh, writer wrote. And I started from scratch, from the initial idea, and I redeveloped the, the entire thing, uh, keeping in mind the, the American market, the American kind of uh, language in comics. And to do that, of course, I could uh, rely on, on pages and pages of script by Robert, and of course, by also talking to him and and talking and reading other stuff, and it it uh, the, probably the the most uh, the, the most important thing that I learned um, is the pacing and the rhythm of things going on into the pages into the comic. I was starting from like for example in the in the French uh, market, there is not. Um, a strong idea of the cliffhanger at the end of the issue. Okay. Uh, because there, like, the issues are structured in a different way, and then they come out sometimes one year apart. So it's very different. Uh, working with Robert and, and seeing him put a cliffhanger every 20 pages, I, I realized that that was a, a, a better way to pace out comic and to build a structure for it. And so that was one of the, you know, the best teachings I've ever had. And I, I, I studied, I studied uh, script writing, but um, just for uh, uh, cinema and, and, and television, and it was a long time ago, and I didn't have any um, 
practical experience about that. So I was kind of fresh about the whole process. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that, that was uh, like a, the realization of, of that was one of the things that sparked uh, in my head the idea of, of presenting the pitch to Robert and to John Makiewicz in Skybound. And luckily enough, they, they, they green-lighted it. And so here I am. Yeah, with the advanced copy, I can't see an editor's name. It's, it sounds like Robert definitely helped you out a little bit, at least in terms of construction. I can imagine that's been super helpful when you're, you're trying to kind of do everything yourself because you're the triple threat of this. Um, and it's, it's all kind of new to you, right? Yeah, I mean, I always, um, whenever, when I started doing comics, um, drawing comics, I always wanted also to write them. Uh, and so I always wrote comics, but mostly short stories or like humoristical stuff, nothing serious and nothing long. So this is my first attempt, something like that. And um, uh, I mean, doing everything is kind of, uh, it, it's very frightening because you don't have anybody to blame. You don't have anybody <laughs> to say Okay, now it's my turn. Leave leave things to me, and I will take care of it. So you, I basically, uh, when I when I deliver the the last uh, version of the pages, I rewrote them like ten times. And sometimes when I go and re rewrite them, I re uh, redraw something, or maybe I change an expression, I fix face, and so it's it's like it's very painful because you don't know where when to stop in a way sure but yep. thankful thankfully there are deadlines so in a way it's also it's a part of the process you know like comics it's also the time that you have to do them like you don't you can't take away the deadlines from the media in a way otherwise you have like a never-ending working on something so uh yeah definitely like for the first uh, issue, for example, I um, I turned in my first um, uh, layout, my first version of the of the of the whole thing, and Sean Makiewicz uh, told me that it needed a, another a couple of more uh, an action beats and something else where uh, I could understand a little bit better the motivation of of a character. And so I went back in and I added some pages and the whole thing was way smoother than before. So that that's something definitely I'm, I'm very lucky and I'm very grateful for. And um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I was about to say something else, but I, I forgot. Oh, it's all good. So who are some of your other influences, both as, as a writer and as an artist? I mean, uh, as a writer, I, again, I, I learned a lot from Robert, and I was a, a big fan of him even before working with him. Uh, so there is a lot uh, there. Uh, and then, I don't know, like, I always read a lot of comics, uh, of uh, American comics. I grew up reading American comics, but then I also um, read a lot of uh, Italian and French ones that are quite different structurally and there is a different taste to the stories and the different kind of uh, again of rhythm 
of everything. So I think that in the in the end, my my way of, of writing is a little bit of a mixture of all of these things. But I don't know, like in the in the American market, I've of I've always been a, a great fan of uh, like I don't know, like Alan Moore, for example. But for example, uh, the 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 latest uh, stuff from him. I was really very fascinated by because like the uh, American best comic stuff. So Tom Strong, uh, Promethea and things like that. I've always been very fascinated with that because those were a way to blend in the the rhythm of an American comic with some more uh, content in a way. And so it was entertaining, but at the same time, you felt that were you know learning stuff or figuring out stuff, and that's basically the, the thing that I that I uh, you know wish I would do I do one day. Well, it seems like right now every third interview I do, um, there are Italians popping up everywhere. Most yeah. mostly mostly as artists, but you know um, what's in the water you guys are drinking? Like wh- why are we ex- <laughs> why are you experiencing that kind of Italian renaissance? Like where there's so much exposure to to Italian creators right now? Uh, I think I think the reason is that we have a, a, a very strong tradition of comics in Italy, but there is also a problem with that because uh, our market is pretty close, meaning that mm, until like maybe. Five to ten years ago, uh, the majority of artists, uh, of Italian artists that worked in Italy, they worked for Italian comics, and the Italian comics are mostly read by Italians. So it's a it's a whole you know it's a whole ecosystem that is pretty independent. We don't export many comics uh, outside of of Italy, but the the level of um, uh, the artistry of of the Italian um, artists it's very high because uh, the the there was there is just basically one publisher here in Italy that is very big that uh, uh, that uh, I don't know if you ever heard about like Dylan Dog or mm-hmm. Tex Wheeler like that uh, so that publisher has uh, a very high entry level. For the artists, so you need to be very good to to get there. But at the same time, uh, it's it's uh, it kind of uh, you know flattened flattened out a little bit our taste because to draw there you need to be very realistic. Uh, you can be grotesque in any way, so there is not many uh, you know shades of different kind of styles. Publisher, so. Uh, there is a lot of you know uh, people reading comics and wanting to draw comics that then they they find the obstacle in front of them because you don't draw in a certain way you cannot work for this Italian publisher. Okay. So in, in time it grew this sense of I want to do comics and I was one of those too. Like I wanted to work there initially. But then I realized that my style it wasn't going to happen, so I turned myself to the French market, and I think that lately, just I don't know, it's just internet or the you know the way that some some hurdles just fell 
fell down and and just um, communication the communication is way more is way easier and it's way easier to show your stuff around and it's way easier for american publisher catch your stuff uh, around the web i think that it's it's that so there is like very you know very difficult and 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 challenging school in the beginning and then when we can you know pop out of italy and do that okay so maybe that's one of that's one of the ways that i explain that thing to myself because i noticed that too like like gladly because of course i'm very glad uh, i'm 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 very glad because um you know it feels like uh it feels like uh, that that people that wanted to work with comics and couldn't now found a way to do that so it's liberating for that it's not it's not really uh any italian pride or anything it's just you know it's more it's more like an artistic pride than anything else. yeah it sounds to me a little bit like in a way with that publisher like disney has has always been yeah. here in term in terms of like trying to create a very specific aesthetic and if you and if you if you look uh you can see that disney uh most of the comics that disney is uh publishes even there are drawn from uh, Italian people because there is in Italy there were these two publishers there was Bonelli or Dylan Dog and Tex and Disney and Disney Disney school in Italy is I think the biggest one that is around so in Italy either drew Tex and so Western and realistic or Disney so there was no in between that drove mad a lot of guys that's fascinating. Yeah. Well, um, this is kind of out of context, but I missed it. And I just really wanted to add, ask about this. So out of all the things you could kind of focus on in Chroma, you know, you zeroed in on her eyes. And I was curious as to why. Well, I think that, um, you know, from a storytelling point of view, the eyes are always the one of the most interesting things explore. There are a couple of things uh i mean the eyes in my in my head were one of the most direct ways to underline her um, diversity in a way like she's different and you can immediately realize it because of that and it is something very evident but then of course the eyes are you know are very symbolically they are very powerful yeah. uh and so yeah i mean i i, I don't think i I uh, underline uh, the importance of the eyes that much. I I also try to take away uh, some of the most rhetorical symbolism about them, trying to show other things that are like, for example, birds are yeah. very very big trauma. And so I tried also, you know, move symbolism more towards them than than the eyes. But I mean, in context, they were the most logical way and the most also more, you know, uh, visually striking way. Well, Oblivion Song is is kind of wrapping up and, and you're getting ready to launch Chroma here. So what else are you getting up to that you can talk about? Well, right now, absolutely nothing. I mean, <laughs> that's not rare. Because I can't, 
about it. <laughs> no, but but because um, I'm I'm 100% focused on on Roma, and I I've had some things that were um, has been offered to me, and to you know to go after that. But I'm coming from uh, like I, I didn't stop uh, working uh, since the beginning of a billion song or a period of time longer than like four or five days. Wow. So I'm burned out. Uh, and so after Chroma, I'm, I wish I, I will have like a, a little bit of a, of a gap, uh, between works, because, between jobs, because I'm kind of tired. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and so I don't, I'm not, I still not doing, um, Specific projects or specific plans. Um, I'm trying to, you know, to have Chroma and just Chroma in my head right now because, you know, I, I need to be focused. Got it. Well, where can people find you online if they want more information about Chroma or more information about you and what you're up to? So uh, you can find me on Twitter or on Instagram. Uh, now I should give you links. But basically, just uh, look for Lorenzo De Felici on Twitter and on Instagram, and you should be able to find me pretty. Yeah, we'll include some hyperlinks in the in the show notes yeah. so people can find you easily. And my last question is about the hustle. Um, it's a new segment where I'm asking people for one piece of advice for people who are struggling. You know, they're trying to break into comics, um, and this can be anything. You know, there's a lot of things that creators deal with. It could be emotions. Um, it can be burnout. You know, you were even talking a little bit about that. So what have you got for them? What's your piece of advice? So my piece of, my piece of advice is the piece of advice that I find myself giving to my students. Uh, oh, pretty much always, because it's a, it's a problem that a lot of people have that um, whenever you feel like, uh, you know, you're not satisfied with your stuff or you're not doing it or, uh, you're trying to do something and you're not succeeding for a, for a while. Um, I, I advise my students and everybody to ask you change the focus from your skills to the, the content that you're trying to put out. Meaning that uh, if you're trying to uh, to build a box, a beautiful box for something, and you're uh, you know, you're going crazy uh, about it and you, you're trying to make it perfect. But then you're not focusing on what's inside of the box, meaning the reason why you are doing the box, because the box, even if it's very beautiful, can be an empty box and nobody is going to do anything for an empty box. But uh, so sometimes to focus on the content of the box, so focusing on uh, what you are trying to get to the other side of your page is something that sometimes it helps me because I'm, I'm always frustrated with my stuff. I'm always not happy with the things that I do. But then I think that there are some things that you can be happy about because they are intangible. And you are, can work towards those things in a you know, way more pleasant and um, way than uh, focusing on on doing something very beautiful. 
Thank you. Well, I always try to pitch a book at the end. Um, those that have followed me for a while on the podcast know that I read mostly trade paperbacks. So it's a, it's a very rare book that I will pull monthly because I just want to read it that badly. And this this is one of them. It's hard to describe how visually distinct it is because we don't want to give anything away. I want people to check it out. I would be stunned, honestly, if it's not option for TV development down the road. Uh, do yourself a favor and, and pick this book up. I really feel blessed to have gotten to, to chat with Lorenzo about it. So thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. Thank you for, for having me. It's been a yeah. pleasure. This is Byron O'Neill. And on behalf of all of us at Comic Book Yeti, thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time. This is Byron O'Neill, one of your hosts of the Cryptic Creator Corner, brought to you by Comic Book Yeti. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Please rate, review, subscribe, all that good stuff. It lets us know how we're doing, and more importantly, how we can improve. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of the Cryptid Creator Corner, maybe you would enjoy our sister podcast, Into the Comics Cave. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now 